So how many of you are Doctor Who fans? Ooh, a cool congregation. This is way more than any I've ever encountered. Um, so to explain to the rest of you, there are some pretty, Doctor Who is kind of science fiction meets horror, don't you think? I sit there wondering, why am I watching this? I don't like horror movies. Um, and there's some really interesting evil characters. Um, there are the weeping angels who have made me terrified of stone angels in any form. Because weeping angels, when they stare at you, turn you to stone or steal your life force. But an even scarier creature appeared in the 2010-2011 season called the Silent. And the Silent are based on Edvard Munch's um, force um, paintings called The Scream. The Silent have these elongated faces. Um, they wear dark suits. Um, they don't even have any mouths, except when they send out this electric shock that they telekinetically can do, and it's stronger when they're together. A big vortex opens up where the hole is in the scream. The idea is that human beings subconscious, cons subconsciously have seen them and recognized them and put them in paintings, though we don't remember them. Because the scariest thing about the silent is that they are so forgettable. Human beings see them, take suggestions from them, but when they turn away, it's out of sight, out of mind. They have no memory that they've seen the silent. So some of the characters in Doctor Who decide to mark themselves every time they see one. And there are these nightmare moments where they come to themselves singing, oh, phew, I've been alone, and they see more and more hash marks on their arms. They haven't been alone. I bring up that story because I was trying to make sense of a blindness I find in myself that I find very troubling, and I've only started to touch the tip of the iceberg about. It is my blindness to a whole group of people that I look at, I hear their stories, the stories that should evoke a trail of tears in us and does in me, and then I look away and I go on with my life. A group of people who inhabited this area and where I was born in Massachusetts, and I so easily can forget their presence and their footsteps there. It's a reversal of the silent, and I'm the evil one. But as I've worked for several months on today's message, the one thing I've discovered is how deeply that silence is ingrained in us, how deeply we quickly erase that history. So first, I'm going to begin by talking about how I got to want to do this project. I walked into your community room one day, and it looked like a tax form had exploded all over the walls. <laughs> it turned out that all of the proposals for your general <laughs> assembly have been taped to the walls. I've never seen that in a UCC church. That is so cool. So I went around reading all the proposals, but I really read one. It just jumped off the wall. Because every year when I look at Thanksgiving, I find it very important that we give thanks. Very important that we don't forget that original story. But very important that we don't celebrate the myth that we've built up in American culture and that we do a fair bit of mourning first. So I'm going to read to you your proposal that was proposed by a group of churches in Massachusetts and has been accepted. Um, if you fall asleep, I'm sorry. 
but it's perfect. Um, I really like it, and I hope it's something that other people will pick up, that I'm just not just talking about this once, but over the next few years, maybe some of this could be done. So this is the business resolution, Thanksgiving Day Reconsidered. Whereas the year 2020 marks the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the ship Mayflower in the region now known as New England, and whereas concern has been expressed by Native American tribal leaders, by human rights advocates, by environmental justice advocates, <clears throat> and by others, about the celebration of the 400th anniversary of the colonization of New England, and whereas several of the New England congregations that were established during the 1600s continue today as Unitarian Universalist congregations, and noting the role of Unitarian Universalists in developing the holiday that is now known as the American Thanksgiving Day, and noting the desire of Unitarian Universalists to work for peace and justice for all the world's people, therefore it be it resolved that this General Assembly encourages all Unitarian Universalists to enter a time of education, careful reflection, and healing during the years 2016 to 2021, and that special attention be given to the suffering, indignity, and loss that Native peoples have suffered since the early 1600s, and be it further resolved that this General Assembly ask the President of the UU Association to report next year on national, tribal, and congregational plans for both the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower Voyage and the 400th anniversary of the first Harvest Festival in Plymouth Colony. And be it further resolved that this General Assembly ask the President to work in consultation with Native American peoples to present recommendations to congregations, districts, camps, theological schools, to observe what is often called the first Thanksgiving in America, be it finally resolved that we encourage UUs to work with all of the religious groups that trace their religious root to the pilgrims and the Puritans. When we confront the past that we share with others, we ask for wisdom with charity as we try to better understand the people and the environment of the 1600s. To prepare for the future, we must make peace with our past. As we approach the Plymouth Colony, quadricentennial dates, we ask for religious education programs that acknowledge the radical reformation and the religious dissenters and separatists of the 1600s. The story of that, the dissenters and separatists is part of our UU story, and their influence is still with us. We ask for religious education programs that honor and respect the spiritual wisdom of indigenous people, including the Wampanoag tri tribal nation of Mashpee, Massachusetts, who first met the pilgrims. We ask for all UU congregations around the US to enter into dialogue with local Native people in their areas about the Thanksgiving Day holiday and its history. In today's world, we know that we are part of an interdependent web of all existence. With this awareness in mind, we ask for a time of truth and reconciliation for all Americans, including Native people, during the years 2016 to 2021. I read all of it because it had to be that long. It is such a complex undertaking. We have to respect the crazy mind view of the 1600s, but maybe not endorse it. 
We have to honor the separatist tradition that led to both my denomination and yours. But most of all, I believe we have to be in conversation with Native peoples who have survived this and learned from them and learn how to erase the silence that has been built up within each, I assume, each of us. I clearly see it so strongly in me. So I was really excited about this project. But on Wednesday of this week, I thought, oh my goodness, this incredible election just happened. The country is split in two. Why am I preaching on a story that is 400 years old? Once again, I participated in the silence. Why indeed not speak about this story? For the one thing I want to take from this election, um, you know, if your candidate won, congratulations. Um, if your candidate lost, I'm in, we are mourning. <laughs> but together, I think we can agree that one of the biggest fears of those who lost this election is that the vulnerable are now more vulnerable. Whether you believe that or not, please be patient with those who believe that. And please take a pledge, all of us, to stand with those who are vulnerable. Because if your candidate won, what do you have to lose? And if your candidate lost, we would have everything to lose. If we don't stand following some of those seven principles of the UU, to honor the worth and dignity of every person, to work for justice, to Right? So I think that's one area we can be agreed on no matter where we come from. And why not start by talking about the group of people we have ignored the most in this country? Um, as one commentator said, after World War II, we helped Germany. We have yet to ever truly help a Native American tribe. This invisibility, I, I need to get back to how this played out in me. So of course, I completely forgot that I was talking about one of the most important things to talk about because of that kind of silence inside me. Um, and I want to share with you over the past few years how that silence keeps appearing in my life. My parents' ashes um, are buried in a cemetery in southern New Hampshire. And I can see two mountains from there. I can see Mount Monadnock. And I can see Mount Wachusett. And Mount Monadnock is a really cool mountain to climb. You know, you show your medal if you make it up and down. Mount Wachusett, you can drive to the top. A friend of mine got married there. I've climbed a watchtower there, just this metal rickety thing you're not supposed to climb. And you can see birds flying below you. It's kind of a tamed mountain. I had lived almost 50 years before I knew that in 1675, Almost 20,000 Native Americans gathered there for King Philip's War. Throughout my life, I had seen signs on highways, King Philip's War. But I had not ever studied it or heard about it or known about it. I had not known that within a generation of arriving and working with Native Americans, the same tribe and the same group of colonists would have this huge war. A war that left but percentage-wise, was seven times worse than the Revolutionary War and two times worse than the Civil War. Three-quarters of the casualties were Native American. I had come today, I had wanted to come today prepared in, 
to have a really good Unitarian message in which I could quote statistics about who's still alive and who died and how many there used to be. And, but unfortunately, the statistics are very hard to do because the Native American people that the Mayflower encountered in 1620 were not a unified force. There are many different groups living in the area where they arrived. And the group headed by Massasoit, the Poconoket Sachem who worked with the pilgrims, had just lost multiple, multiple um, people in their villages because of plagues they picked up from encounters with the English. And so he worked with the colonists to fortify himself against the Narragansetts, who suddenly were bigger. 55 years later, when we uh, the two groups started warring, the colonists still did not understand that the Native Americans were different groups. Some of them wanted to work with them. Some of them wanted to work against. They just decided, well, here's this big group of Narragansetts. They haven't attacked us yet. They were not interested in participating. Well, let's just take a preemptive strike against them. And so they had to join this conflagration. And we still don't understand that Native American groups are different and decide who they are differently from how governments want to do it. Um, there is a woman named Sharon um, Tolley who lives, she is um, a Nip, Nipmuc Indian um, near, where, near Mount Wachusett. And she says that we don't go by someone being pure blood or the level of blood they have in them. People are welcomed into our communities. And very often men marry into a matrilineal system. We welcome them in and they become Native American. Just because you have Native blood doesn't mean you're part of our community. But because there are so few people who are pure blood, in 1980, Massachusetts sold off almost the rest of all the Nipmuc land because they don't, they don't really exist. We still continue to have blinders about what it means to be Native American and what it means to count the figures of people there. So I couldn't give you statistics. I'd have liked to have horrified all of us. How many people were here? How few are now left? And what is our role in all of that? But we can only imagine it. I think part of the reason we have this inner silence is something called psychic numbing. Jay Lifton said we, we did it about nuclear war. If we lived every day focused on the possibility of nuclear war, we would all go stark raving mad. I did in high school. I don't recommend it. And I think this is such a painful grief that if every day we faced what has happened to Native peoples in this country, it would be too painful to even get out of bed. Uh, two, yesterday, no, two days ago, my family and I went for a lovely healing walk in the Chiricahua National Monument. It is easy to walk there and forget the people who once lived there. But I tried to force myself. At least the rangers' brochures had a nice little ethnographic description of the first peoples here, but no description of how they were forced out or what happened. One of my favorite professors is um, a Methodist from Puerto Rico named Hal Racinos. He talks about the importance of studying your painful histories, whether they are part of your family history 
or the area you live in. How many people here like watching Finding Your Roots or Who Do You Say That You Are, right? When you watch those shows over and over again, people discover their painful histories. No one told them that their grandmother's family died at Auschwitz. No one told them that their great-great-grandparents ended up in a poorhouse. No one told them about the infant who died young and this terrible plague that hit their family. Families don't always pass on that information. And most people find healing and understanding of their families. Things start to make sense because of this whole, even if it's generations back. The harder thing to do, and, um, oh, the actor. Ah, there was an actor who would not refuse to show his portion because he discovered he was, his ancestors had owned slaves. The harder thing to do is find where your family has had ugly truth in the past. A few years ago, my son was studying slavery, and he was really upset by its presence in this country and what it meant. He'd really imagined what it was all about. And I found a wonderful family history to give him, to give him strength. I have two, my great-grandmother's brothers were 20 years older than she, and they fought in the Civil War. One of them died of measles, and they lived in a house that was part of the Underground Railroad. And I could describe this powerful history of resistance and cheer him up. But I have yet to discover, and I'm sure it's there, the parts of my family that own slaves. Right? It is so much harder to go back and face the painful stories that we perpetuated. I've been reading a book called Mayflower that I highly recommend. It's by Nathaniel Philbrick. Yep, and it talks about, you know, why were they welcomed? And then why, a generation later, was there this huge bloody war? What did both sides do, especially the English, to make this happen? And a lot of it has to do with understanding of land, needing more land. Eventually, Native Americans only had land to sell, so they kept selling land. Um, and it led, eventually, to this conflict. Um, I highly recommend it, um, but as I'm reading it, you know, I, I take pride in hearing that my husband and I are related to several people on the Mayflower, and uh, the two people who helped the governor through after that horrible first winter were our relatives. Then a little while later, thank God it was his relative <laughs> who perpetuated the first massacre, needless massacre, against Native Americans. Back um, in Holland, uh, John uh, Robinson, who was the preacher of the separatists who left from Holland, who stayed in Holland because a larger number stayed in Holland, who died before he could actually come out, but knew how to write letters, he got very upset with Miles Standish for having done that. And I wonder, what would our world be like if we had had Lincoln? What would those colonies have been like if John Robinson had managed to arrive? But I invite all of us to look at some of this painful history. And I invite you out of um, the words of a Native American young woman, Kelly Hayes, who posted this week because of Standing Rock. And she talks about how blind so many of us still are to the stories of Native peoples. She writes, it is crucial that people recognize that Standing Rock is part of an ongoing struggle against colonial violence. 
It's a struggle in a long erased war against native peoples, a war that has been active since first contact and waged without interruption. Our efforts to survive the conditions of this anti-native society have gone largely unnoticed because white supremacy is the law of the land and because we as native people have been pushed beyond the limits of public consciousness. She goes on to say there are several areas we connect with other people. Climate change is incredibly important. But first and foremost, please remember that we exist, and this is about our rights and our rights to exist. She repeats several times, we are not simply here when you see us. We have been here fighting for our lives, surviving colonization, and that reality is rarely acknowledged. Even people who believe in freedom frequently overlook our issues, as well as the intersection of their issues with our own. So when this world is bearing witness to what is happening at Standing Rock, you must remember it goes beyond where we connect to our story as Native Americans. Everyone should be talking about climate change, change but you should also be talking about the fact that Native communities deserve to survive because our lives are worth defending in their own right, not simply because this affects us all. Every Native at Standing Rock, every Native on this continent, has survived the genocide of 100 million of our people. That means that every Indigenous child born is a victory against colonialism, but we are all born into a fight for our very existence. We need that to be named and centered, which is a courtesy we are rarely afforded. And she says, this message is not a condemnation, but an ask. Remember, remember, remember. Look, 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 and see. Understand this story. I think one of the first reasons we go silent and we forget the story is because of how painful it is. The second comes out of a doctrine that has been discussed a lot recently on Facebook because of Standing Rock called the Doctrine of Discovery. Um, in 14, it's 93, trying to find it. There was a papal bull issued by uh, Pope Alexander VII, May 4th, 1493, stating that any land not inhabited by Christians was available to be discovered, claimed and exploited by Christians, rulers, um, and he declared that the Catholic faith and the Christian religion be exalted and be everywhere increased and spread, that the health of the souls be cared for, that barbarous nations be overthrown and brought to the faith itself. This doctrine of discovery became the basis of all European claims in the Americas and the foundation for our Western expansion. And if you don't believe it permeated our history, I have some words for you from original presidents. John Quincy Adams, who was Congregationalist and UU, right, or Unitarian, in 1802 said, what is the right of the huntsman to the forest of a thousand miles over which he is accidentally ranged in quest of prey? Shall the fields and the valleys which a beneficent God has formed to teem with a life of innumerable multitudes be condemned to everlasting barrenness? God gave us this land. What are some savages to lay claim to it, right? James Monroe, writing to Andrew Jackson in 1817, says, the hunter or savage state 
requires a greater extent of territory to sustain it than is compatible with the progress and the just claims of civilized life and must yield to it. Nothing is more certain than if the Indian tribes do not abandon that state and become civilized, that they will decline and become extinct. The hunter state, though maintained by warlike spirits, presents but a feeble resistance to the more dense, compact, and powerful population of civilized, and you can read into that God-blessed man. Even Benjamin Franklin, if it be the design of providence to extirpate these savages in order to make room for cultivators of the earth, it seems not improbable that rum may be the appropriate means. And William Henry Harrison, who was governor of the Indiana Territory in the early 1800s, wrote, is one of the fairest portions of the globe to remain in a state of nature, the haunt of a few wretched savages, when it seems destined by the creator to give support to a large population and to be the seat of civilization? I mean, it's funny, but it's horrifying. This undergirds our history. It undergirds who we are. It is part of our culture, and I believe it is part of why we are blind. And at some level, even if we believe that people who believe other faiths and people who follow other religions and people who have other spiritual ways of being, we believe that, some deep, dark place of us probably doesn't because we still have work to do in ourselves, right? So finally, Truman and John Kennedy said something that I'm willing to listen to. Harry Truman said, the United States which would live on princip Christian principles with all of the people of the world, cannot omit a fair deal for its own Indian citizens. And Kennedy said, for a subject worked and reworked so often in novels, motion pictures, and television, American Indians remain probably the least understood and most understood Americans of us all. And I believe in what Harry Truman said lies some hope. We need to mourn our history, come face to face with what has formed us, so that we can move forward, so that we can make change. But change is incredibly difficult. When you talk about changing a culture, one of my favorite per people about organizational change, Edward Schein, says, you have to hold together eight things and do them all at once because change is so anxiety-provoking in people. You have to create this environment of safety and interest, and you have to do everything at all, all at once. You have to have a compelling and positive vision. You have to provide technical training. You have to have a place for people to practice and coaches. You have to have good role models. You have to have support groups. You have to have structures already in place to support that change. You have to get the learner to help create their learning. And then you have to informally train everyone around. I mean, you have to basically be building the airplane while you're trying to fly it to do cultural change. But he says, instead of cultural change, what if you use part of a culture against itself? He talks about organizations in Europe that had had lifetime employment and finally had to give that up and were heartbroken over it. 
but discovered another part of their belief system and their culture, which is we take care of our own. And so they decided that if they could train people and prepare them and give them a great golden parachute, if they could take care of their own, then maybe they no longer had to have full employment, lifetime employment. And I'm not saying, I'm not going to talk about the justice issue of that, but you can use part of your culture in a positive way to help you through a change without a wholesale change of culture. Everything that we sang today, everything that we prayed today, even the story I said today, I picked before the election. But as I heard it, I thought this speaks out of who we are. For me, the, the great words that came out of this election, no matter what side you're on, is we aim high, right? And so many of the words that we sang and spoke together today that come out of this tradition talked about that about aiming high, about looking for the common good. There is so much wealth in this tradition. There is so much wealth in the separatist tradition that led to the Unitarian and to the Congregational Church that is part of my roots. There is a lot that's good. There is John Robinson, who spoke to his congregation as they left Leiden, and forgive his sexism, said, there is yet more truth and light to break forth out of God's holy word. Or God has yet more truth and light to break forth from his holy word. Saying to them, you go forth without me, but others will lead you. But in the new world, what that became was, spirit still has more to reveal to us. Every generation has to make sense of their faith and of their sacred scripture. That is what led to the great expansion of this separatist Puritan project. That is how Puritans also led to ordaining the first women in a congregational church and then the universalist denomination. That is how we ordained openly gay men. That is how we move forward to ordain Native Americans and um, African Americans. That understanding that we have yet more truth and light to break forth to guide us, to lead us forward. And that is my sole hope, that um, in the words of a UCC pastor who wrote a really catchy tune, I will not sing for you, but I will a quote for you, more truth, more light is breaking from your word. More truth, more light. Holy Spirit, help us hear what needs to be heard. And part of that listening is to the Native Americans who are still alive, who still live near Mount Wachusett, who still live near here, who have a wisdom to impart to us and also a survival to remind us of. And as I give you this message, it is not a command, it is an ask. It is an invitation to keep working on ourselves, to work on the places where we are silent, to dare to feel that terrifying, painful, awful history that we are complicit in, but also the good parts of our culture that we can take and use for change. More light.